Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. You're feeling burnt out. Imagine how nurses must feel. Does Canada care about the allegations of sexual misconduct in the military? Should we be holding an Olympics during a pandemic? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. Nice day for a vaccination. More on the way this week. We're getting there. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you have it. Uh, Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. All right. uh, Let's move on. And uh, here is the latest uh, in regard to vaccines coming in. Uh, listen to this and and, uh, give us a bit of an update on uh, where we are coming up this week. Canada is scheduled to receive 2 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine this week, nearly 800,000 being directed to Ontario. And from there, 50% will be delivered to the hotspot postal codes as promised by the province. In all, 23 million Pfizer doses are expected in May and June. The next Moderna shipment isn't coming until next week. It delivered a million doses ahead of schedule last week. The company will be sending another 6 to 8 million shots by the end of June, but thanks to some production delays, there's no firm timeline. And when it comes to AstraZeneca, 1.6 5 million doses are expected by the end of this month. The province is looking to have 65% of all adults with at least one shot by May 31st. That's three weeks today. Tina Trajani, Global News. We certainly know how this has affected all of us. We certainly know the fatigue and and uh, and just uh, the the frustration, the anxiety that's been going on over the last uh, over a year now of this uh, global pandemic, and it, it's affected all of us in every single walk of life and every uh, in every situation you can think of. Uh, but imagine what you're feeling, and then imagine what it's like for those on the front lines, like in healthcare, like in nursing, and such, who have been living this uh, day in and day out for uh, the better part of a year. And the rest, uh, the Registered Nurses Association of uh, Ontario has uh, conducted a survey, and uh, it's alarming as they've uh, been hearing feedback from their members uh, in regard to. Uh, they're fried, they're burnt out, and uh, to the point of uh, many saying they are going to bolt from the profession uh, following the pandemic because they are, they're just burnt out. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Doris uh, Greenspun is with us, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and is with us now. Doris, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. I am doing uh, much better today given that uh, number one is the first day of nursing week, and an announcement came out of, from government that we will be prioritized for the second shot of the vaccine. You cannot imagine the stress of my colleagues in ICUs and step-down units, uh, both nurses, respiratory therapies, of knowing that they were not fully protected. So that change is happening, and uh, those nurses can register starting today, the same with others other healthcare workers in uh, areas where they are confronting caring for people with COVID, uh, with COVID variants. So good news today. We shouldn't call it good news. It should have happened automatically, but you know we take anything that is good news. You know, it's interesting you say this, Doris, because as the rest of, of uh, the population slowly waits for uh, their vaccine, we forget about those that started way back when in January, and those were obviously uh, the doctors and nurses on the front lines who received some of those uh, first vaccinations way back when, but now they are coming to their point where they need that second dose. And, you know, many people have been concerned about getting the second dose and where that is going to come from. But uh, obviously, for those that received a vaccine way back in January and February, this is uh, a very big priority for them to keep protected. Well, one thing is for you or I. Um, my office is working from home. You are working from an yeah. office. For us to have one shot 
And yes, of course, to continue to use the mask and all the good things we know is one thing and it's fantastic. But those that are working minute by minute with patients with COVID positive that are super sick in ICUs, that should not wait a day. Mm. So going to the survey, this will help hopefully release some of the stress. You are right. Um, we receive in a matter of days, I think four days, we receive over 2,000 RNs and NPs responding. Uh, it mimics what others have done in other polls and, and the such. Uh, about 60% of them have experienced uh, super high, very high levels of stress during these 15 months. The most disturbing piece, uh, Scott, is that the most affected one in our profession are the RNs that age 21 to 40. And those are the ones, as you mentioned before, that about... Um, 13% of them are saying, I'm staying in because I don't want to abandon patients in the midst of a pandemic. I'm staying in because I cannot abandon my colleagues and my workplace. But after the pandemic, I am doing something else. And we need to do everything we can to retain them, Scott, because those are the nurses that have 20, 30 years ahead of them to really deliver good for the province and for Ontarians. So we are pleading to them, wait, help is coming. You need to know that Ontario has the lowest RN per population in this nation, the lowest RN per population. A sober moment for this government to do good in terms of bringing the RN per population to at least the rest of the country. This is why we don't have enough RNs for ICUs. The thing, Scott, is that this is not going to end for the public well otherwise, because it's not only COVID. You know the backlog on surgeries. Those people that will need complex surgeries will end up in, you know, ICUs, step-down units, ORs, etc. They need their rents, and if this province doesn't step up to now do things that will retain them in the workplace, like the ICU rents, Cover their education. It's four months if a hospital sponsors them. Government, put the money to sponsor more ICU RNs. Uh, bring more RNs into the schools. We put a, a letter to the premier last week, two weeks ago. We haven't heard back. The universities are ready to take 500 additional uh, baccalaureate prepared nurses to their programs. They haven't heard from the province. They are ready to take 70 more nurse practitioners. They haven't heard from the province. If they don't hear by the 1st of June, you know what happened. Those students will accept something else. So the, the tools are there. We all want to help to both retain our RNs, is, is a richness of our province, and to also bring more on board. The government needs to act and needs to act fast. You know, I, you said something, Doris, I found fascinating, and, and especially after reading this piece of uh, from the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, uh, and they were saying that they're going to, there's going to be an alarming exodus from the, uh, from the profession following the pandemic. Yeah. So they're so dedicated, they're not going to walk now. <laughs> they, well, they're they're, gonna, they're helping out as much as they can, the but as soon as... That it, you may have seen... Uh, not only that, they didn't even take time off to deal with the stress yeah. because they didn't want to abandon patients and their workplaces yeah. and they knew there is not enough ICU RNs and, and enough critical care RNs and enough RNs in nursing homes, you name it, right? Anywhere, because the province is the lowest. But yet we are dedicated to the point that they are willing to stay. We need them to stay for another 20, 30 years. You see what I mean? So the government has a chance to act, and this is the week that they need to announce, yes, we will fund the universities to take the 500 additional arrangements they want to take and to take the additional 70 NPs they want to take. Otherwise, the system will collapse, will collapse not just during COVID, post-COVID too.
Have you found this, uh, the one positive out of this is it has certainly drawn more attention to the health care, uh, you, you know, right, uh, you know, from doctors to, to personal uh, service workers, to, to personal care workers uh, and such. Are you seeing more become interested in this profession uh, through all of this? Well, the interesting thing, uh, Scott, is that there is, worldwide, not only in Canada and in Ontario, an absolute surge in people that want to become RNs, registered mm. nurses specifically. A huge surge. This is why the universities have said we will take 500 additional uh, entries to the baccalaureate education program if the government puts the money for the seats, and we will take an additional 70 nurse practitioners, which are at ends with additional two years of education if the province puts the money. So the, the ball is in the government's court, and they need to kick it fast and to give the funding to the universities so we don't end up in a catastrophe post-pandemic. Do you think that, uh, you know, obviously this pandemic has drawn attention to uh, not only the positives in the in the healthcare, but obviously the negatives in the healthcare system uh, as well. Uh, do you think that finally you will get uh, uh, more attention, more more focus on this than in the past? Because it seems in the past, you know, uh, these sort of things were shuffled to the back burner. Do you think this has drawn attention to the profession, and and hopefully uh, even post pandemic, this interest well, will continue? It better it better is sustained by um, the media. You guys have played an incredible role, uh, a very positive role. It better is sustained by the public because if not, we all will suffer the consequences. A system cannot function if you don't have an adequate supply of registered nurses. This is what happened in Italy. Remember? They, mm-hmm. they couldn't open even beds because they didn't have enough RNs. And this is what's happening here. And you see that in the, in the death rate that we are having. Yesterday, 49 people died in those ICUs. It's because we needed to move people from all other units to help the ICU nurses because we don't have enough. And we'll say compromise. If you don't have people with the adequate education and training for every single role we do, the consequences are paid one way or another, not only in burnout of the staff, but also in patient safety. And we are seeing it in real terms in tragedy. You were talking about time off, Doris, and downtime uh, through this. And obviously there's a shortage of personnel, so you can see how that's not happening. After this pandemic is over, I mean, <laughs> it's like they're all going to need a vacation. Well, First of all, what we need to watch very carefully that the survey doesn't say it because I don't want to give it legs, but I need to tell you, is that the U.S. will be like suctioning our ends if we are not careful in a way that we haven't seen before. You have a new president that values. He sent already a tweet last week about congratulating nurses for nursing week. He, he meets with them. He does webinars with them. We better have our prime minister and every single premier in this country stepping up to the plate. We ask, for example, the chief nurse officer from the prime minister. We still have not heard. The U.S. has one. Biden has named nurses right, left, and center to work with him, and he will come. The same as we are going there after vaccines, he will come after our events because extremely well-educated they are top-notch practitioners, and if we are not careful, not only will be this exodus that you saw in the survey, but the U.S. will be sanctioning our, our resources uh, in terms of our ends because that's what they are after. They are also short. Uh, are you concerned that because it has been such a difficult time for health, uh, the healthcare industry, I mean, they're on the front lines, has this uh, discouraged people from getting into this business? No, the opposite. I think yeah, that that's amazing. That want to make a difference um, are absolutely drawn into it. The same that I was drawn into it in, in the 70s. You have people now. In fact, there is a huge surplus of applications 
what we need is the government to put the money to the university. Universities are ready to uptake 500 additional additional students to the baccalaureate program, which is the program for RNs, and also 70 more nurse practitioners, which are RNs with additional capacity to diagnose and to prescribe. What makes a great nurse, Doris? Oh, my gosh. I would say, number one, values, to have really uh, values that are person-centered, community-centered, the good of the collective. Number two, knowledge, 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 knowledge in your specialty, in the area you work. You need to know everything that there is to know to give the best possible care, excellence in care. Number three, courage, courage to stand up for what's good for patients, what's good for the communities. And with that, let me tell you what will be our ask on Friday, the last day of nursing week. We are going to challenge this government to put back the dollar that they cancel to the people with minimum wage, the sick days to become permanent, because that is health. And in the tradition of Florence Nightingale, health is not only healthcare at the bedside, health is prevention, health promotion, and if you are poor, you have worse health. And this is what's happening, as you know, in this third wave of the pandemic, who is affected, the poorest of the poor, people in minimum, people in precarious employment, that needs to change, and nurses are there to make sure it happens. What would you say to someone who's listening right now and is thinking about taking this up as a, as an occupation? I would say um, I, I have never, never regretted for a second. I worked during the war, two wars, if not three, in Israel, and I became a peace activist. Uh, every nurse I know that you see in social media is a wellness activist, is an excellence in care person, I would say it's the best profession of all. It's a passport to a meaningful life. It's a passport to work wherever you want in the world. This is my third country, the fourth that I live in, and this is the best profession ever. So, you know, we are going through a dark tunnel. We will see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. So to those 21 to 40-year-old nurses that are looking at moving somewhere else, stay because it will provide you a meaningful life that you make a difference for persons, for patients, for residents, for communities, and for everybody uh, that, that is close and far away from us. Dr. Doris Greenspan with us, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, uh, a new survey out talking about just how burnt out and fatigued uh, obviously the nursing community is uh, trying to survive this global pandemic. We all know what it's like for us to go through. We can imagine what it's uh, like for those on the front lines, especially uh, as we're long past a year uh, into this. Doris, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Happy Nursing Week. Be well. Thank you, and thank you to all the media and to the families of nurses that have really stepped up to the plate in supporting us. Dr. Doris Greenspun with the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. And if you're interested, they certainly do need you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. At the time, what I was wanting to ensure was done to protect the complainant was that the proper next steps were taken. And that's what I did immediately, and that's what I took seriously, and then there was no more information to be had. That is Katie Telford, right hand to the Prime Minister, and what she knew uh, testifying uh, on committee, in committee, in regard to the allegations, sexual misconduct allegations reported against uh, former General Vance. And uh, obviously, uh, this is a situation that we've heard in the military for years now. Uh, sexual misconduct, is it being uh, is it being uh, policed? Is it being disciplined? And now we have allegations uh, against, uh, obviously, the top dog, former top dog in the military, uh, w- which you can't really say that there's 
uh, corrections being made uh, when the allegations go right to the very top. And obviously, uh, the question remains how much uh, Katie Telford knew and how much the prime minister knew about these allegations of sexual misconduct, uh, including extending the general's uh, term and, and giving him a pay raise. Let's bring in Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, great to have you here. Hope you're doing well. Good to talk to you, Scott, and thanks again for the great big sea. It remains the closest to Newfoundland I can get during the <laughs> pandemic, so good man. You're on the wrong side of the bubble, buddy. What do you do? Uh, see, we're all on the wrong side of the bubble these days, Scott. My God, we got a big May 2-4 weekend coming up, and I don't think we're going to have a big May 2-4 weekend, but that's okay if it keeps us safe. I hear you, man. I hear you. All right. So uh, considering the severity of these issues, and it involves allegations against uh, the top military guy here, uh, are, are you surprised this has turned into a he said, she said, and what everybody knew here? Not really, because that often seems to be a bit of the pattern here, which really has to be frustrating for complainants uh, who bring this forward, because it... The he said, she said seems to evolve after the information was transmitted from the military ombudsman to Gen- or to um, Minister Sajjan. And then there's a bunch of different interpretations that aren't always consistent about who knew what and what was it they actually knew. Was it a Me Too allegation or not? So you understand why people don't complain. I mean, I think what the government is trying to do, and, and having Katie Telford appear was part of that, is to show that they have a commitment to the issue but um but they so that you want to show the commitment to the issue at the same time they want the story to go away the story originally last week was telford wouldn't testify now she has the committee i believe has shut down does the story go politically quiet uh, as some of us have discussed uh, for the next little while so why would she why would she testify now after initially not wanting to well, because she's good on the stand. Look, she, uh, I mean, people might not, may not know this about Katie Telford. She's an accomplished debater. She won some university prizes for all of that. She worked in the communication world. She's a very confident presenter, uh, more con- uh, more able, arguably, than some of the MPs who were questioning her. And as some have analyzed, maybe the MPs didn't focus enough on asking her the right question. So having her uh appear uh, takes some heat excuse me scott heat off her boss it shows a commitment to the issue and it doesn't hurt the story from the perspective of the government any further though you have seen some people come out and say how can you katie telford and the liberal government in one hand say you really take these issues seriously and it's your focus to to address them um and i think katie telford herself said she wished she'd asked Jonathan Vance more questions. Well, at the same time, you really seem to be obfuscating here. So it it continues with a, a, a contradiction of sorts, but the government thinks they can manage it, is my guess. Uh, so do we know anything more as to who knew what when? Not that I saw in all of that. Um, I, no, I, I don't think we really do. I mean, I, I didn't know before, but it makes sense that Katie Telford would have been part of an interview process <clears throat> at some point or discussions with General Vance at, at some point. Um, maybe that's the newest thing that I knew that was acknowledged, but most of the rest of it was a, um, a reminder of things that have been said to date and contradictions that we can see uh, or that the liberals hope we don't see that have been brought forward. So I, I guess the story is here from her that uh, she was content in knowing that uh, Michael Wernick, the clerk of the yeah. Privy Council, was going to investigate that and that sort of got her off the hook. Is that valid that that seems to be that that you know there was a she bought the argument and that you know it shouldn't be politicized so uh, Sajin did the right thing by or his chief of staff did the right thing by reaching out to her staff and then the wernick gave them counsel that let's not politicize this let's send it to the you know the civil service so they can look at it there won't be a political angle to it Maybe that was an acceptable process, but somewhere along the way it fell down. And where I find 
is the argumentation that was brought forward by different liberals last week, including, I believe, the prime minister saying, oh, we didn't know it was a Me Too allegation. Yeah. Somehow suggesting they would have done more. Well, okay, but that seems like a little too late, and yet you're still hanging your your defense around, oh, well, we did the right thing anyway by handing it to the Privy Council. We may have just called more if it was a Me Too. I don't, I don't know what their point was. In, in making that argument, if, if, if they still stand by the fact that the bureaucratic process that they had selected was the best one to look at this. What does it say when uh, Katie Telford says she wished she had uh, done more and brought this up when she was talking to Vance and they were talking about Me Too situations and and uh, and how they were going to uh, to move on this going forward? Uh, again, it just it, it seems like you knew, but you didn't know. And it, it's enough information to at least make someone ask why <laughs> what's going on here, as opposed yeah, to, OK, it's none of my business. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I think the acknowledgement is twofold. Uh, I think in part it is a, rec- a legitimate recognition by Katie Telford, who I, I think does rightly win praise for trying to address equality issues all across the government, that she should have done more. And second, it's the closest thing you're going to get to an apology from the government, right? Uh, almost saying, yeah, we should have done more, but hey, we didn't, and here's what we did, and sorry but not sorry. Is that valid, though, especially considering the report that was out in 2015 and this was part of a new regime to fix this? Yeah, look, the Deschamps report, the one you're talking about, by the first Supreme Court justice who looked at this, and now, of course, we have uh, Justice Abor looking at it as well. I mean, a lot, maybe, I shouldn't say that, maybe a good portion of this could, well, some of this predates what Deschamps had um, had recommended, but the government could have done more, and that's the public argument um, by people who know this subject better than you and I, if they had have implemented recommendations. So it's from the Deschamps report. It's almost like calling in Louise Arbor, who is widely respected and, and known across the country, um, to do this is, is is just buying them some more time. If Ar- Arbor says the same thing as Deschamps, and again, the government refuses to act, well, it's, it's, it's shame on the government and shame on us Canadians for not... Uh, uh, continuing to call them out on it. Uh, many have said, you know, they're, they're sorry that this slipped through the cracks, I guess, but this is the self-proclaimed feminist government. Yeah. This stuff isn't supposed to slip through the cracks. This is supposed to get priority. Exactly. So, and that's a point of weakness for Justin Trudeau, though you'll, you know, there's some data out today, I think it was from Ecos Research, that shows the Liberals have still have a very strong lead among all female voting co- cohorts when compared to the to the uh, conservatives, but this is the sort of stuff that many in those female cohorts will get rightly angry about. Um, lip service is almost worse than uh, than not doing anything. So is this resonating with Canadians, Tim? Scott, wait for the climax here. Hang on. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, because it, 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 in another time, it might. And it's not because it's not important. It's just, it's COVID. Tell yeah. me anything that gets more airtime than COVID. And, and rightly so. I mean, what, what are you, your friends, your neighbors focused on right now? Whether you're getting your shot, whether somebody in your family's getting your shot, when are you getting your second shot? If you had Astra, is it compatible? That's hard to break through because it's so personal and it's about your, your, your immediate life and your behavior. So, no, uh, it's not getting the broad public attention that it would if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, another uh, another study on this, another review, uh, very similar to what we had, although they say this one is different. Is this to just push this past to the next election? Just yeah, kick it down absolutely. the field. Look, if you believe the theory that uh, spring election is not going to happen, which I say is a pretty safe bet now, Scott, uh, mm-hmm. and that the election is being punted to the fall, depending on whether there's, dare I say it, fourth wave uh, and or good vaccination rates and disease recidivism. Um, so the election is probably going to happen in the fall. Uh, our board is obviously not going to have a report done by that and by that point in time. So, yeah, it, it take it, you know, the, when the prime minister is on the stage virtually or in person in an elect, election campaign in the fall, um, he can say, look, we brought in Louise Arbor. She will look at everything here. We will, you know, accept the report and do the best we can. And that is what they hope will be a satisfactory answer.
If uh, if the story is uh, that the prime minister did not know that this was a Me Too movement, knew there was something, didn't know what, um, how would he feel about Katie Telford? Katie Telford is very. You know, she's the last of Justin Trudeau's original long-serving aides. She's been with the prime minister since. Um, he became leader. He was part of the group that helped her be- him become leader of the Liberal Party. So they've had a, over, you know, nearly a decade-long association. He does not want to lose Katie Telford. Uh, he probably has greater respect for her now because, as some have described it, Katie went out and took the heat for the boss. So uh, Justin Trudeau uh, probably has no problems at all with Katie Telford. So uh, if he went out and took the heat from the boss for the boss, then you're assuming he knew. Yeah. As opposed to. Yeah, I uh, mean, yes. I mean, you could. Uh, the one thing I will say that is believable in this, um, chiefs of staff are most next to the principal secretary, the chief of staff and the clerk of the privy council. They are the receivers of oodles and oodles of information. And it, it, it is entirely possible that it didn't get passed on to the prime minister. But as you pointed out, where their problem is in the believability of, as, of the aspect of this story is the prime minister's stated public commitment to addressing matters like this. So that's why I think we're all having a little bit of trouble accepting that this never got passed on or if it didn't get passed on, why didn't it get passed on? Maybe Katie was protecting the prime minister from the outset. Uh, who knows? And if it didn't get passed on, would he not be upset with her on that? Or would he be thanking her Maybe, for taking the but heat? again, I think their relationship is such yeah. after a decade that she's done so much for him um, and for his government that it would be very and, and she, she's a very able person. She could easily argue that, look, Prime Minister, here's why I did it. And he'd say, OK, that's fine. I understand. it." Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it, he could find a way, if he needed to, to excuse it because of the importance of their relationship and her role in his government. Hmm. Uh, what about the defense minister? What responsibility does he hold here? Well, I thought, uh, speaking of former PM or a now former PML staff member, um, Andrew McDougall, who uh, lives in London, he was writing, I think, for McLean's. He said, you know, there are four deadweight ministers in this government who are just performing poorly. Uh, Sajin, Haidu, the health minister, Blair, and Stephen Gibault, the other three we've mm. talked about before in different capacities. I mean, I, it's hard to see how Minister Sajin lasts beyond the election, uh, and they may shuffle beforehand in this role. He's um, well, he is all well, he's seen in Ottawa as likable um, and well regarded as a person. His performance as a minister has been weak, I think, on this front. I mean, you saw in the, in the Commons last week or virtually the government house leader, so the person who for the government coordinates everybody in the in the lobby. I have to apologize when he swore on camera for saying who let that F bleep Sajin answer the question. That mm. kind of tells you that, you know, his, his, some of his senior colleagues don't have a lot of uh, confidence in Minister Sajin. So uh, fall election now as we all get jabbed? <laughs> it depends on the jabs and whether there's a fourth wave, but it seems pretty likely Uh there, there is a, still a possible, I believe there's one or two more confidence votes, Scott, to come in the next few weeks. Uh, but there's no sense that anybody is deliberately going to pull the government down. There's no sense that the prime minister right now is going to go to the uh, Justice Wagner, as we still don't have a GG, and say, uh, I'd like to go to the polls because we're still in tough state shape here in Ontario. Alberta's in rotten shape. Quebec's struggling. Oh, Quebec's better. Nova Scotia, which is a liberal stronghold, is in tough shape. Um, uh, there are other provinces. Manitoba's in tough shape. I, I don't think the prime minister right now could justify it without some short-term blowback. He doesn't have a 40 or 50-point lead, so he doesn't want that short-term blowback. Uh, seems that the gloves are off between uh, the prime minister and the premier. 
you think? Oh, my God. It reminds me of my bouncing days on George Street. A little bit of taunting <laughs> before the for the fifth fly. Uh, yeah, whatever kumbaya moments they had uh, seems to be going, and both of that, the, 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 their behavior seemed to be politically motivated. I, obviously, the Premier's had a hell of a rough run uh, by his own making and is trying to deflect blame on the feds, uh, they appear to have some polling data. I saw this somewhere that suggests that Canadians, uh, they blame the federal government. One of the reasons why Canadians are irritated right now is they blame the federal government for um, uh, leaving the borders open, and that's meant that variants have get, gotten in. So I, I guess the, the Ford government wants to go after them for that. And, of course, the prime minister knows Doug Ford is not entirely popular in Ontario. So he's taken a few shots back. So we're back to the you know, the twenty, uh, what was that twenty fifteen pattern that we saw, or twenty nineteen pattern that we saw, Scott, when uh, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau used each other to their advantage. Though so I think Doug Ford probably is of more advantage to Justin Trudeau right now than the other way around. All right, uh, Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, talking about uh, everything political, including uh, Katie Telford's testimony uh, last week in regard to the sexual misconduct allegations reported against General Vance. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. As we know, uh, the global pandemic has affected uh, a lot of things around the world. Um <laughs> whether it's travel, whether it's hospitality, whether it's Olympic Games. And, of course, you might remember Japan postponed theirs last year uh, because of the global pandemic. Now are scheduled to start the Tokyo Olympics uh, July 23rd. Uh, that as infections surge in Japan. And about 60% of the people there don't want the games to go ahead. Let's bring in Moshe Lander, senior economics lecturer with Concordia University, and with us now. Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Anytime. Are you surprised Japan finds itself where it is after uh, obviously already postponing this uh, once and now calls uh, to do it again? 60% of the population. That's quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I, I can't say that I'm completely surprised. Uh, oddly enough, you'll find that in most host cities, the locals aren't all that enthused, even in a non-pandemic sort of world, right? Mm. On the one hand, you've got a certain amount of pride that the world is going to be watching. But on the other hand, you've got a tremendous amount of disruption that's going to come to any city that's hosting in terms of all of the tourists that are coming in, the roadblocks, the detours, the uh, uh, infrastructure that needs to go up to, to put the games on. And so the locals kind of get a little burned out, even at the best of times. In the middle of an outbreak, I can imagine they're a little bit edgy. You know, you bring up a very valid point, and I forgot about that. But, yeah, there's usually lots of people in a city, a host city, that aren't happy about uh, the expense and, and disruption and all of that sort of thing. So how much of this do you think has to do with the actual pandemic and just people who, for the most part, probably don't want this? I'm sure that there's some element of it, but I think it's also partly in the way that the question is asked in these surveys that are being done, right? When you ask somebody a, a binary question that, you know, do you want to host the Olympics, yes or no, there's no room for nuance, right? So I, I think if you kind of put that sort of question in front of people, they might be inclined to just say no, even because they're merely just being asked to say yes or no, right? Given what's gone on in the world in the last 18 months, it, it's almost like a guilt that you kind of have to say no, um, there was no option of another postponement. There was no question of um, should we run it where we only allow in locals or people with certification that they've been vaccinated. So without that nuance, I, I think that maybe it's a little bit overstated as to how many people are actually no um, because they don't want the Olympics or, you know, rather than just that, it's the question was asked. What about the fact that it has already been postponed once? Yeah, you know, the thing is that a lot of that infrastructure was designed to be ready for 2020, right? So probably in the last year, there hasn't been an awful lot that's been done in terms of preparing for the Olympics. So I, I think that the big thing that would probably be driving attitudes right now is that, you know, Japan is going through yet another wave and an outbreak in Tokyo. And there's the realization that at the time that they were awarded the Olympics back in 2013, they were anticipating that really the world would be watching. I think in 2021, we're not going to be watching all that closely. I mean, we might catch a little bit of the Olympics. We might get a little bit of that quadrennial fever that we always get when we're watching certain events that we otherwise don't think about. But I think a lot of us have kind of realized in the last year that 
sports are a secondary part of our life. And especially when the weather's nice, things will go on, especially as we get vaccinated and remember what it's like to be around friends and family. And uh, what about the shape that Japan is in from a pandemic perspective? I understand that the cases are starting to surge there again. Yeah, so that's the unfortunate part, right? They've already kind of indicated that, you know, the world is not going to be welcome in Japan. And so there was at least talk that they would allow Japanese citizens to attend some of the competitions, uh, if nothing else, as a way of trying to recuperate the massive losses that they're going to incur by hosting the Olympics. Um, now when we start talking about they're in another wave of an outbreak. It now becomes an issue of for public safety and for the athletes that are going to be traveling the world, you know, maybe you should be barring it to them too. And then at that point, uh, Japanese citizens have every right to say, wait a second, so we spent millions and billions of dollars on this and we're not even going to get to enjoy it, let yeah. alone other people. It, it almost seems like uh, there's going to be a certain amount of anger that's projected. And again, that's partly what's probably driving that 60% against it. Uh, what happens if it's canceled again? I mean, do do you see that? Do you foresee that? I mean, I guess you really can't tell until you see which way cases go, if there is a surge there or not. What about their vaccination rate? Yeah, you know, the IOC has said they're going to go ahead no matter what. And I think they kind of have to go ahead no matter what, uh, regardless of the state of the outbreak. I, I think that they can certainly create a lockdown atmosphere within the Olympic Village that if you come in, you do what you need to to complete your event, and then you get on the first plane out of there. And I, I think that the reality is there is no backup plan because next year in 2022 uh, are the Winter Olympics, and those are going to be in Beijing. And so um, even though it used to be the case that we had Summer and Winter Olympics in the same year, yeah. uh, that hasn't been done for 30 years. And I don't think there's any scenario where uh, Beijing is going to be happy with the Winter Olympics going off in the winter time of 2022 and then we're going to see Japan having to try and mop up the rest in the summer. So mm. it's now or never, and I think regardless of the state of vaccinations, regardless of the state of public sentiment, uh, they're going to find some way to make sure that these two weeks go ahead, uh, even if it's just athletes, coaches, and nobody else is allowed in the buildings. And with that, I mean, because, again, and I guess they're going to make a decision uh, next month on on whether they are going to have spectators uh, just from Japan, obviously international uh, tourists are not allowed. But with that sort of closed environment, with it just being the athletes and the staff and such, can they, do you think they can ramp up the protocol, the vaccine and such, uh, much like we're seeing sports leagues do uh, here? Can they, can they ramp up that environment and make it, and make it safe? Well, I mean, they certainly have the ability to vaccinate all the athletes if that's the way that they wanted to ramp up the program, right? You're talking about um, you know, a small group that even in Canada right now, we're talking about 400,000 people being vaccinated a day. So in terms of being able to get the thousands of athletes uh, vaccinated, that should not be a particular issue. Can they ramp up enough vaccinations in Japan to uh, you know, vaccinate the Japanese citizens sufficiently that they can attend? They're already somewhat there. That I mean, if they just say, look, you have to be vaccinated in order to get in, there are enough people that they could fill the stadiums and arenas to, to watch the events. It's just an issue of, are we now going to start prioritizing people in mind because they're a sports fan, right? Here we're doing it by age. Right. Could you imagine doing it by, like, fandom? Hey, we have some... Uh, yeah. If you've got tickets, yeah. if you've got tickets, then you get a vaccine. Yeah. Exactly. If you're interested in archery, we have some empty seats available, so go get your vaccine and jump to the front of the line. It's just, you know, I, I think that they're going to have to do their vaccination program in whatever way is appropriate for their country. Um, and if that just makes it possible that fans can attend, then good for them. And if not, uh, you know, public health has to come first. Although, you know, Moshe, I mean, uh, a free vaccine might help fill the stands during those archery uh, archery competitions. Um, maybe that's, you know, we're, we're certain. I think the Milwaukee Bucks were giving out uh, vaccinations during one of their games. Why not? Maybe maybe this could be a, a bonus in some form. Um, what about what about sponsorship and such? I mean, how much money has been lost here? Um, well, the sponsors are not going to be the big losers here, right? Because the games are still going to be broadcast. Um, and so, you know, their money is kind of paid up front, and they're hoping that that's going to translate into positive association with the Olympics. So where they stand to lose is if the broader global backlash is how could you sponsor something in the middle of a crisis? And should you not have had enough common sense to pull that money? That's where maybe the backlash comes from. Uh, it's, it's the host committee and it's the venues that are going to get creamed in terms of, of being able to recoup their money. 
sponsors are, are probably going to be able to escape this. Um, and if they can create commercials and ads that kind of promote that we're all in this together and um, everything will be better soon and uh, get vaccinated, um, you know, they might be able to get a little positive spin out of this even. Uh, what about the fact that, you know, we, we certainly are seeing uh, certain parts of the world expand vaccination and such. Could it be by summer that we are in a good enough or they are in a good enough spot to be doing this? Or is is that just, you know, impossible to predict? Thinking, right. It, yeah. It's wishful thinking. We're kind of even saying here in Canada that maybe by the end of June, we could have, say, everybody with their first vaccination. Yeah. The second vaccination, right, is the key. And, you know, even here in Canada, that's being dragged out into the latter part of the summer. So to be able to get to a point where you're going to be able to vaccinate everybody at least once and be going through a second round uh, early enough that you can say that the games can now go on safely. It's not one of those things that, like, you know, the night before the torch is lit, you say, all right, we reached that point. So you need to be able to reach that in the next, say, month maximum. I just don't see that happening almost anywhere in the world, let alone in Japan if they're in the middle of another outbreak. Where? What about the IOC? Where are they on all of this? And what does this do for the Olympic brand? The IOC is the greatest damage to the Olympic brand. (laughs) There, there, you know, there are corruption um, scandals and. Um, the, the bribery scandals of the past and um, their business first mentality, which totally makes sense, but just doesn't kind of resonate with that Olympic brand and, and the, the ring. It, they continue to find a way to just damage their brand. And so, I, I, you know, I kind of feel bad for them in this case that they're caught in the middle, that if they cancel the games, um, the athletes are going to be upset and say, hey, we were prepared to go and we don't mind if there's no fans. This is something that we've worked for almost literally their entire lives, right? But if you go ahead with it, then you look cold-hearted and calculating and money-grubbing, and it's going to resonate badly on them. So I I think they're kind of in an impossible situation. And uh, I guess going ahead with the Olympics, we do tend to get some level of Olympic fever when we have it on TV in front of us. So maybe better to have it than not. I guess that's probably where they're leaning as well. Uh, You know, you're you're talking about this Olympics, which has obviously been postponed once already. Then uh, Beijing, that's got its own set of of controversy there. Uh, Are cities going to be lining up to host the Olympics? I remember 20, 30 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, people were uh, cities were bending over backwards trying to host this, uh, trying to host games. And, And now it seems like it's just gotten too out of control. Uh, too, too, too much money and, 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 and just not worth it uh, in the end. Will it still be the prize to hold one of these Olympics? No, you're completely right. It, nobody's interested in it anymore. And the countries that do bid uh, are generally countries that don't have particular concerns for either public finances oh. or uh, the rights of their citizens to have a say as to whether or not they want it. And so the number of cities that have been bidding has been dwindling for years. 2021, this year, we should have seen bidding for the 2028 Summer Olympics. And in fact, what the IOC realized four years ago was that they could even see that there was probably not going to be a lot of interest. So four years ago, when they were awarding 2024 Olympics, uh, it really should have gone to Los Angeles, which had a better technical um, program. But uh, the IOC said... If we give it to Los Angeles, we're not sure anyone's going to come back. So here's the deal. We'll give it to the second best, Paris, and we'll tell L.A., we'll give it to you 2028 right now. Please don't yeah. go anywhere. And so, in fact, we're not even going to see an awarding at the Olympics this year because mm. they could even see four years ago the way the wind was blowing. Moshe Lander with a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University talking about all things Olympic and uh, obviously the controversy surrounding uh, Tokyo and when it sets to open uh, July 23rd. Moshe, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Talk to you soon. 222, going to take a quick break here. Look up. There's some Japanese junk falling from the sky. Did it miss us? The story coming up. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Other than he may not be very funny, I, for the life of me, could not understand why some, including cast members, were so angry Elon Musk was hosting Saturday Night Live this past weekend. Weekend Update host Michael Che summed the situation up perfectly on Ellen DeGeneres when asked if he was upset Elon was hosting the show. He said, no, not at first. But then he found out he was rich and changed his mind. 
What have we become when we shun brilliantly successful people? I'm no Elon Musk uh, expert by any means, but it's not like he made his money off the backs of kids in a China sweatshop. He is producing electric vehicles and sending people into space. He is easily one of the most impactful people of this century. I love Saturday Night Live, but they write comedy and try to make people laugh for a living. Clearly an important part of a balanced life, but it ain't rocket science. Remember when we would respect people for thinking beyond the fashionably obvious and into the great beyond? And isn't that how we got the technology to even watch shows like Saturday Night Live or even produce our own? Just saying. I'm Scott Thompson. Look, I know I sometimes say or post strange things, but that's just how my brain works. To anyone I've offended, I just want to say... I reinvented electric cars, and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. <laughs> Did you think I was also going to be a chill, normal dude? <laughs> it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. That's uh, Elon Musk on uh, Saturday Night Live over this weekend. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa PR is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, as always, Scott, I hope you're well, too. I am, thank you. You know, I was really surprised at this. Again, to me, it wasn't a big deal he was on the show. I was just hoping it was going to be funny. But it was amazing to me the amount of people that jumped on this uh, get Elon off the show bandwagon and didn't want him to be a part of it because of, I guess, who he is. I know, I saw that, too. It was by some of the castmates, you know, cast members of SNL themselves. So, And I thought, well, gee... Yeah, some of these tweets actually went up, and then suddenly some of them went down. So, as we know, Lauren Michaels, Canadian Order of Canada, is the longtime, forty plus years, producer of uh, Saturday Night Live, and I'm sure he saw those tweets and contacted those cast members and said, "Take it down." Or what happened was is that they were sort of all in it in order to create, you know, drive people to watch the program. I, you know, Lord Michaels is, is a wily guy, and you don't have a show that's been on air for 40 years without having, you know, a sense of wiliness about you. So I think this whole thing about, well, he's just too rich and he doesn't need to be on the show was really just cooked up in the writer's room, if you ask me. And also, I mean, I don't know what the numbers were to tune into that show, but I can tell you one person who tuned in, me. But, you know, doesn't Elon Musk have enough of that cachet anyway? I mean, he's one of the most impactful men of this of this century, I would say. Well, I mean, you know, again, you whether you like him or hate him or whatever, I mean, you can't argue what he's yeah, done. Yeah. You know, when you put when you put sort of a, uh, a layperson on a comedy sketch show, it can go one of two ways. Actually, yeah. it can go one of two ways when you put a good actor on the show, yeah. too. If you've watched Saturday Night Live over the years, as I certainly have, and a lot of it depends on the sketches, and a lot of it yeah. depends on the writing. So I, I, I guess, you know, they had confidence that he would be able to pull it off. I thought it was very interesting. I know you haven't seen it yet, but I'll just divulge one small thing to you, Scott, is that he said, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm the first host to have to, ho- to have Asperger's, yeah. and um, or at least the first to admit it. So I thought that was very interesting, and I really did think he did a good job. I mean, honestly, my bar was low when I went to turn on and and watch the show, but the monologue was good, his skits were good, the whole skit about Dogecoin with his mother and with Michael Che was good. I honestly think, you know what, I think he knocked it out of the park, considering I wasn't expecting much to begin with. I don't think this was a PR setup. Uh, and and Alyssa, uh, you know, I, I think that for a guest like this, you're gonna get you're, you're gonna get attention anyway, because just like I said, he's 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 uh, he's a huge figure uh, in in life in this millennium. Uh, so you know, I, I think what happened is exactly as it happened that there were some people that were upset about it and then they realized that it was a there was going to be backlash from this so and i I don't think it was a pr stunt because if it was uh i guess it did work and get us all to to watch but again i think it would have uh created uh more backlash for the cast members that said that as as people just kind of you know, shake their head as to, you know, what, what's the criteria to be a great host 
and it has nothing to do with the wealth of a person or not. So, you know, I, I couldn't see it being a PR thing simply because it didn't work. I mean, I guess it got people to the show, but I don't know. Um, or maybe do you think it's just a theory that they were testing? Uh, people hate him because he's rich. I think that there's a, a lot of reasons why Lord Michaels chose him to put on the show, and I'm going to throw one out to you, Scott. You know, for the last you know, four years, uh, we there was a natural lightning rod that we would always tune in to see the cold open of Saturday Night Live, and that was Donald Trump. Yep. And all those crazy cast of characters that filled the White House administration that made for a great sketch comedy. So now you have President Biden, not the, you know, not that he isn't uh, somebody that you could uh, make fun of, but it's certainly, mm-hmm. th- there's no, you know, oh, i got to see what Saturday Night Live is doing this, this Saturday. I have to see what they're doing. I have to see if they're going to have Alec Baldwin on with Donald Trump. Oh, I wonder if they're going to tackle this issue. That's not really happening this season. So, you know, in absence of that, what are you going to do? So when you think about you get everybody in the room together and it says and they say, "Okay, well, who is the craziest person that we should have on? Who's the most unlikely person that we should invite to have on as guest?" You know, they throw out some names and somebody says Elon Musk. And they say, well, you know, he's a polarizing figure. He's a lightning rod. He has a huge uh, social platform. He tweets whatever he thinks. He's he is uh, an, an innovator. He's not an imitator. Let's ask him to see if he'll be on. And I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. And and I think that there's, whenever you engage in something new or innovative, especially if you're the one putting out that message, Scott, there's always 20% reason not to do it. And the 20% reason was, well, I don't understand why he's he's on. He's not even doing the entertainment industry. He's probably not funny. He's just like a rich guy. And knowing that that would be some of the backlash, I think that they were willing to suffer that as a way of driving viewership on that Saturday night. So the numbers will certainly bear out whether uh, that uh, was true or not. But honestly, if you're on Instagram and you follow at NBC SNL, you can see all the good clips. You can see without having to go through the whole show. You can see all the good clips that he was on. So uh, I think that he did well. I think that there was there were people who were like, huh? But in the absence of a of a hot political climate with a with a figure that um, you know can can create havoc uh, any day of the week, every minute of the day, no longer there. I think Saturday Night Live is, is has to be a little bit more creative, push it a little bit, and uh, do these type of things. So this sort of blows my whole theory out the window that uh, we don't admire successful people anymore. <laughs> So is that not the case now? Because that was my whole premise behind this. Well, I I, I think that it, listen, your theories are always good, Scott. Let's let let's not. Um, let, you know, you know here, not let me let me interject another thing. You said you know he's the rich guy. Like we're referring to him as the rich guy, rather than the rocket scientist. Well, he's the rich guy that makes the rocket scientist happen. Uh, you know, what was interesting after SpaceX, uh, SpaceX launched and had this successful mission was that apparently, you know, there's great consternation among uh, Richard Branson and uh, Jeff Bezos because they also have started funding um, into uh, space exploration. So, you know, it's interesting. NASA has uh, a very defined budget. Likely it's in the billions, but it's uh, probably it's federally controlled. Yeah. And what's a better way? Way to you know um, open up space exploration than by with people with uh, unlimited amounts of money. So I, I think that what was interesting about his narrative, Scott, was he was said, yeah, you know, I'm a little unusual. Yeah, I tweet ridiculous things, but I've also decided that we could have a sustainable economy with the motor vehicle, and I also believe that we need to have a multiplanetary presence rather than just everything here on Earth. So. You know, here's somebody, a lot of people talk that stuff. And and listen, I'm not like Elon Musk, biggest fan or anything to that effect. But, you know, a lot of people talk, but very few people walk. And and let's face it, you don't love him or hate him. He walks the talk. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what genius isn't out there? I mean, you know, most who are at this level are are are, are a little off-center. Well, they, they could be, but they also have to, I think that they're, you know, just, just crazy intelligent, quite honestly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the ability to say, okay, I want to make this happen, 
So not only just to have the idea, but also to have the resources. Lots of people have great ideas. You know, there's millions of armchair quarterbacks that you know. But, uh, you know, how many people actually put the pedal to the metal? And there's very few people who do that. And as a result, you know, you brew some egos, you say some ridiculous things, you are in the line of fire for, you know, anybody at any time of the day. And those are definitely the personal risks that you take. But, you know, after watching Elon Musk, and, and you know, when you think about it, it, it kind of was a an exercise in rebranding. And, you know, th- I think that speaks to your point, Scott, that, you know, we all have this um, vision or we have already these preconceived thoughts about who we think Elon Musk is. So here you put him on a huge show with a huge platform right in the demographic where, you know, he wants to be and be seen and be known. And you give him a wide berth to talk about himself, himself personally, himself with his mother, and, you know, himself about his wealth. And what better way to offer a a branding or an explanation of why I am the way I am than by having Lauren Michaels give it to you on Saturday Night Live. So do we put these sort of personalities on pedestals or do we knock them down? And well, I shouldn't even say personality because he's an influential person. He's much, much more than a personality. He's probably less a personality and more a brainiac, an influential person. But isn't that the risk you take? You know, if you want to do something like this on Saturday Night Live, it can be, it can go either way. Yeah. So, you know, when he talks about Dogecoin, which is exactly as Michael Chase said in the in the skit, which was, so what is it again? So what is yeah. Dogecoin? And trust me, it's it's the same thing. So, you know, you take that risk of, you know, when he said, he said, well, it's a hustle. And then Elon Musk says, yeah, it's a hustle. And as a result, you know, there's all been all sorts of negative publicity about Dogecoin. But it it seems to me that Elon Musk is, you know, any the kind of guy where any PR is good PR. I purposely, uh, you know, I, I actually don't quite believe in that because it can cause you greater damage, especially if you don't have the resources or the thick skin in order to deflect it. But I think that, you know, you know, what it might do, Scott, actually, is that people who, you know, let's say Richard Branson's now on the phone to Laura Michaels. Well, mm. you know, you gave him a shot. How about me? And, you know, Jeff Bezos. Well, you know, you had him on. What's my thought on Saturday Night Live? And I don't think that's that's what's going to happen. But trust me, that's what all the people are thinking. So what Lauren Michaels has done is sort of like kicked open the door to non-entertainment industry figures who could possibly take that hosting job on, on Saturday Night Live in order to rebrand, sell themselves, or sell something. Alyssa Freeman with us, uh, Alyssa PR, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Remember, we were talking about this with Paul Delaney on Friday. Uh, obviously, uh, China working on a, uh, a space station and uh, back and forth, back and forth, taking pieces up. Uh, and a giant piece of a rocket fell back down to Earth on Friday. We weren't sure where it was going to go. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, space exploration a- expert, professor of astronomy, physics as well at York University. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. So apparently this piece fell back to Earth and all is well. (laughs) Well, it did fall back to Earth and it didn't hit anybody. I'm not quite sure I'm going to go with all is well because we haven't addressed the issue for the future. But this particular space debris is down and, as I say, did not appear to hit anything or anybody. Uh, obviously this has happened before, which is what your concern is, what you're speaking of here. So how do they make sure, meaning China, that this doesn't happen in the future? And, and what is the rest of the world, um, doing in regard to that? Well, you know, when we bring stuff back from orbit, you can either do it in a controlled fashion, in which case, obviously you can pick your time and you can pick your, your final resting place, your final destination. And most groups are able to do that. And we, we dropped the derelict satellites and the like in the South Pacific. But of course, if you aren't in control of it, and that's what happened with the uh, Long March 5B, then you don't know when it's going to come down and therefore you don't know where it's going to come down. We were lucky on this occasion. This one came down in the uh, West Indian Ocean and uh, by all accounts, the debris just hit the water and that was that. And most of the time you can roll the dice and that is going to happen. 70% of the planet is water. But 
you know, 30% is land. And of that land mass, you know, there are people who are living there. And uh, we've had satellites come down before on land, most notably uh, China's Long March 5B from last year landed on the Ivory Coast uh, in Africa, in West Africa, and actually hit a few buildings. So, you know, you can bring stuff down accidentally onto, onto land, and that's not good. Most spacefaring groups try very hard, but not with 100% success, to deorbit safely and successfully, and that really is the expectation, and it should be the norm. You can do that and therefore minimize almost zero out any possibility of danger or damage. But unfortunately, at the moment, there are some groups out there, China most notably at the moment, but they're not the only ones, who aren't following this best practice. And it's cheaper not to worry about it, just let it fall wherever it may. Uh, Mm. But that's really not good enough. And do we know if this is a mistake or if this was planned on their part? (laughs) Everything that you hear from China suggests that, so be it, this this was... uh, they they had never planned to deorbit it. They were going to roll the dice. Uh, so there's not been any admission that there was a failure of the onboard system. Uh, as I said, the most uh, recent uh, snippet of the news conference that I listened to more or less complained that this was all Western hype and that uh, you know the vehicle was under control and everything was fine. Mm. But it wasn't. We saw it tumbling in orbit. That was from the light curve. Uh, if they knew when it was going to come down and where it was come down, why wouldn't they have told us? So, I mean, it's pretty clear that they did not have control uh, of the vehicle, but neither did it seem to bother them. Would NASA or Americans be interested in this debris? Would they be looking for it? I wouldn't think so. It's a rocket hulk. Uh, it, it's not as if it was a satellite or a spy yeah. satellite of some description. It wasn't a segment of, the, of their space station. It really was basically one big hollow tin can. Uh, right. Admittedly, it weighed 22 tons, but it was one big tin can. I wouldn't think that they're looking for it, but you know, what do I know on that regard? But I don't know. I, 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 they certainly could be looking for it, but most of it would have sunk by now. The heavier parts certainly would have sunk straight away. The, uh, you know, the, the, the lighter flotsam, if you will, the outer shell of the rocket, yeah, it might be floating, but I don't know what that would tell anybody. Paul Delaney with a space exploration expert, professor of astronomy, York University. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You bet. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.